Hi there, you're listening to the Guitar Speak podcast, produced here in Sydney, Australia. My name is Matt Wakeling, and thank you so much for joining me. Now today, for episode number 64, I get to speak with Dweezil Zappa, the one and only, and it was very exciting to hear that Dweezil and his band will be touring Australia and New Zealand in February 2018. Now you may be aware for the last decade or so, Dweezil has been keeping alive the incredible musical legacy of his father, Frank Zappa, by uh, touring and performing shows all around the world. It was great to talk to Dweezil about the impact of getting so immersed in his father's music, what what impact that had on his own uh, style of composition and, and playing and putting bands together. We also talk about the masterclasses that Dweezil will be holding before each of the concerts, talk about his touring rig, and also some really exciting news about Dweezil's own solo career. All right, it was a great honor to meet Dweezil, so let's get straight to the interview. Here we go. Dweezil Zappa, welcome to the Guitar Speak podcast. Thanks for having me. That's great, great to have you. There's a, there's a lot of buzz already just on the uh, recent announcement of your 2018 tour of Australia. Well, that's good because we love coming down there. So hopefully, um, we'll get a lot of people to show up and make it so we can come there more regularly. Yeah, awesome. When was the last time you were down under? Um, I think it's probably almost five years now. Okay, cool. Well, that's great. And this is um, also the first time you've visited New Zealand on this tour. That'll be cool as well. Yeah, we're definitely looking forward to that. That's um, exciting because I think my dad only played there once in 1976, I believe. I love that um, that video you made with you and your band and the chalkboard map of Australia and New Zealand and the kitchen. Oh yeah, tiles. well, <laughs> yeah, we uh, we were backstage at um, one of the shows on uh, our last tour, and uh, we just got confirmation that we were going to do the the Australian tour so um they had asked if we could make a video to to say hello to everybody uh-huh. and tell them we're coming down there that's great and that was the first attempt at the video we uh just kind of thought well there's a chalkboard backstage so we might as well pretend like it's a uh some sort of a, a class that it was teaching with uh, kitchen tongs <laughs> It's great. Now, this tour is specifically celebrating um, 50 years of, yeah, your dad's music, of Frank Zappa's music. And in addition to your incredible solo career, um, which, which you've been running concurrently, you've been playing um, Frank's music for well over a decade now. Um, I find this whole story of you um, doing your dad's music very, very moving and, and the, um, the excellence you put into it as a tribute. What, what does it mean to you to present Frank's music on, on this scale? Well, uh, first, thanks for the kind words. We uh, appreciate the uh, acknowledgement of the effort that we put into it because uh, it is a lot of work. But it's it's always been a labor of love for me. Uh, you know, I I used to see my dad's shows as a kid, and I I just thought of it like it was the most amazing magic trick that he could get people to play this stuff. And there were these hand signals, and the music was changing different directions there was so much uh depth and variety in all the compositions and it's just unlike any other music that i've ever heard you know it's really 
truly is its own unique style, just Zappa music. And uh, when he was no longer able to tour anymore and he passed away, um, I started to notice that there were people that were of a younger generation that if, if the name Frank Zappa was mentioned, they would say, who? And to me, with all of his musical accomplishments, I just thought uh, that was a shame. You know, I thought younger generations had missed out on this magic trick that I'm talking about. So uh, I set about uh, putting a band together so that future generations could witness the music live on stage, commensurate with the way that my dad played it. And that was the goal, let the music speak for itself and uh, learn it to the best of our abilities and, and leave no stone unturned as far as the details go. Uh-huh. Fantastic. And are you seeing um, much of a shift in the demographic when, when you talk about reaching out to younger audiences? Are you seeing younger people coming to these shows? Uh, yeah, we definitely do. You know, I mean, uh, you got to look at it uh, and put it into perspective anyway. So uh, when we started about 12 years ago, because, yeah, it started in 2006, um, the first demographic that was really showing up to all the shows were people in their middle 60s. And, you know, there was maybe some people in their 50s and on down but it was a smaller um, demographic initially sure. there. So if we play for a decade or more, it's not the same people because, you know, it's not, if we look out in the crowd, it's not 70-year-olds and maybe some 80-year-olds. It's it's going the other way, you know. So there's, uh, there's a lot of people that um, have been very supportive of the the tour and come to multiple shows on on every tour there's a guy from france who has been to uh 100 shows you know we've played over a thousand shows in fact maybe over 1500 shows and this guy has been to 100 shows uh so we see him pretty frequently and uh uh, but he's not alone. There's a lot of people that that come to a lot of a lot of the, the shows on every tour because we do change it up. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of music that we're playing that my dad never played. Uh, you know, we're playing album versions of songs where it really is uh, intended to be the the record arrangement and the the sound design from the record. Whereas my dad really didn't set about doing that. He uh, was always working within the instrumentation of the band and and making the arrangements that he wanted to play live instead of trying to recreate the record. So we have a lot of um, areas where we can play stuff from a record or do some other things that that he really didn't um, get to in a live situation. And... Oftentimes when we're playing the the record version, that's the the version that people are most familiar with anyway. Yeah, so yeah. they they're excited to be able to hear that version. That's awesome. There's there's such an enormous catalogue of work. It's an incredible body of work. How do you go about choosing material for a gig or a tour? Well, it is a, a tough challenge. Um for this tour in particular that's coming down to Australia, it's um, it's a variation on the, the tour that we've been doing for a while, which is called 
50 years of Frank, and we're celebrating the the 50 year anniversary of his first record, Freak Out. Uh, so what I did when I put the show together initially was featured elements from Freak Out and some of the earlier records of the Mothers of Invention era. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wanted to make the show as much like a chronological time machine experience as, as I could. Uh, and at a certain point, it doesn't stay very strict on a timeline. It, it just it starts with the first record. It goes through the first couple of records. There's like a few medleys of, of some Mothers of Invention stuff, and we get into some Flo and Eddie era stuff that's really fun, uh, 200 Motels era stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, right. by the time we get into the early 70s, you know, then it starts to become... Uh, you start to hear some songs that are maybe more of the accessible songs that people might expect to hear, um, you know, songs like Montana or Zombie Wolf or something like that. Sure, but yeah. uh, but generally speaking, the show is uh, is designed to bring you material that has not been played very much uh, by my dad, um, and we're actually working on a version of a song called Rollo, which was played on um, one tour uh, as, as there's, there's, it's kind of tricky because the song uh, appears in various forms, uh, but it's never been uh, put together in all of the forms in one arrangement. Uh, okay. So, uh, there's a rather tricky way of explaining that we are putting together all of the forms in one arrangement so you can hear the the way that song developed. And the interesting thing about it is that it has elements from Zombie Wolf. It has a part from San Bernardino. It has all these things. Before those things appeared on records, they were in this one song called Rollo, which also has pieces of St. Alfonso's Pancake Breakfast and all of these things. So it's a it's a really crazy composition because it, it spawned many other things and to put it all together uh, in in one home base uh, medley is uh, will be fun just because it, it hasn't been done before. That's brilliant. That's awesome, man. What's the band preparation like that? I can only expect it's fairly grueling to get across such material and to do it well. Well, when you have to learn some of these things that... Um, are complicated arrangements, uh, and there's not uh, any musical scores available. It becomes a lot of musical transcription, and uh, we, we're fairly adept at that, having done this for 12 years now. Uh, and what we do is we check it against every known version that's been released, okay. and even the bootleg, so that we know... Uh, that we've got it as accurate as possible. Um, and uh, for us, that's really um, the goal, is, is to play it uh, as it's written or as it was performed um, when it was released, uh, or if there's a really particularly well-known live version of something, you know. But the, okay. yep. the reason that we stick so close to this stuff is that I really treat it more like classical music and not rock and roll music obviously there's the rock and roll vibe that that yeah. lives within the music but uh but as an example 
you know, when an orchestra is carrying forward the music of composers like Beethoven or Mozart, they're not trying to recreate the music for a modern audience. They're not bringing in urban sounds and drum machines and a rapper saying, yeah, you know, yeah. Sure. Oh, yeah, Beethoven, yeah, one time. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, you don't, you don't need to, uh, to do those kind of modifications to, uh, to work such as this. And I, my dad's music to me falls in that category. Um, so even though we're putting together arrangements of stuff that he didn't actually do, uh, live on stage, we know that there's recorded versions of each of the things that we are doing. We're just, uh, putting them together, uh, so that they connect, mm-hmm. you know? So it's, uh, it's interesting to be able to do something like that, but, um, but by no means am I saying, oh, let me rearrange all this stuff and do it my own way. Yeah, sure, sure. How has immersing yourself in Frank's music shaped you as a guitar player? Well, the biggest change when I really set out to do this was um, there was a lot of technical stuff I had to change, physically change my playing, but the hardest element was that my dad had such a wide vocabulary, uh, deep, deep vocabulary rhythmically and uh, and all of the harmonic tricks that he knew as a composer, not just a guitar player playing licks. He, he was able to respond to the music in real time and listen to the drums and listen to whatever instruments were accompanying him and answer what he was hearing so if there was a rhythmic phrase he'd pick up on it and he would answer it and he he had so many uh different harmonic tools to to alter the the landscape um melodically that that's the biggest challenge is uh how do you expand your vocabulary and how was i going to be able to to play in context to the music so that it would sound like something that my dad would potentially have done. Mm-hmm. Um, because I just didn't want it to take a complete left turn when it came to a solo. I wanted it to still stay in context and use sounds that were evocative of the era of whichever song we we're doing and, sure. and all that stuff. So it's been a, it's been a very difficult uh, learning curve to, to try to incorporate all that stuff. Uh, one of the hardest parts about it is that in that sort of extemporaneous uh, improv world, um, trying to navigate that really without pre-composed ideas, you know, maybe I have some little strategies of, of things that I I know I can rely on, but my goal is to do it like my dad did, which was to really just make something unique happen uh, in those improvisational moments uh, and try not to repeat anything, you know. So sure. that, you know, that right there is, is what takes anybody a lifetime to develop, yeah, uh, you know, uh, that kind of vocabulary. Yeah. You, um, you seem to love teaching. You hold the Dweezilla, um teaching camps, and uh, before your... Um, before your gigs on this tour, you'll be running guitar clinics. That sounds super cool. What, what kind of stuff do you cover in those clinics? Well, the, the best thing that um, I like to offer people is um, uh, a simple way to look at the guitar neck because um, I think 
most guitar players, when they're just beginning, uh, they get excited about it. They learn a couple of things, most likely the pentatonic scale. and They learn a few licks that they memorize. And then after a little while, after practicing the same thing over and over, they kind of hit a wall. And they you often hear guitar players talking about, oh, I want to get out of the box. I want to learn to play stuff that yeah, sure. sounds different than what I already know. And, and uh, so... Rather than say, hey, you got to learn a whole bunch of new stuff, the main thing that I like to do is, is show them how to use what they've already practiced a lot, but use it uh, in several different ways. And one of the, the best, easiest ways to describe it is that if you look at the guitar as three sets of two strings, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, sure. you could literally even take off four of the strings and leave two on your guitar when you practice this. Uh, but... The idea is that with a pentatonic scale, you only have five shapes to learn. And when you know those really well, you can play them in any key anywhere. And the beauty of it is once you know those, it's the same on the other two sets of strings. And it's just divided by the octave. So suddenly the guitar neck is all connected in a way where you don't see boxes that are normally taught for uh, the pentatonic stuff and uh, so it's like you suddenly have this lateral movement um, and the freedom to explore moving up and down the neck that way and uh, it's something that people get right away which is really the best part about it because they they feel like oh I could go home and practice this and have fun right yeah, away yeah. You know? awesome I love that idea of putting into groups of two strings because that immediately rules out the um, yeah, the awkward tuning discrepancy in the middle of the neck where you move from fourth tuning to that third for the uh, between the second and third string. So that that automatically just opens up the thing. As soon as I heard that idea, I thought, oh, yeah, that totally makes sense. Why didn't the rest of us think yeah. of this? Yeah, well, you know, when I was a kid, uh, I would learn how to play by, I would hit like an open A string and then I would start looking for notes that sounded good if I played on the high E string or whatever. And I started to realize that there were all these shapes that were um, basically symmetrical with the exception of, of two in a sequence. So if you have, if you played all five of these, these groups mm -hmm. in the pentatonic scale, uh, three of them are symmetrical and two of them aren't. So the third and fourth shape... Um, you can't play exactly the same position on each string. Um, and so that's the, usually where people get a little bit messed up for a yeah, moment. Yeah, for but sure. as soon as they figure that out, uh, it's, uh, it really helps them to uh, feel comfortable in any key uh, because you can... What I, The other part of this, you know, it's hard to explain without the visual, but sure, sure. if you have one home-based shape that you're playing in, um, I always describe that you have you have an immediate friend to your left and an immediate friend to your right. Mm -hmm. So if you are ever wanting to develop an idea and you want to move down the neck, you know, oh, I have this automatic shape that's right here. Or if you want to move up, you have this thing. So you, you start developing your, your strategy and, and visualization of the neck to always know that you have a position to your left or your right and uh, once you sort of develop that for all the positions, then it's very intuitive. The whole neck 
is always uh, in play. You can you can go anywhere on any set of strings, and uh, and it just makes it so that you can make more call and response ideas yeah. and develop uh, themes. You know, so it's it's fun. I like to show it. It's it's real quick to demonstrate. I've also got it on a on a course online on truefire.com. I did a course uh, that teaches uh, this and a bunch of other things in depth, but it's uh, that one is called Fretboard Freedom. Okay, cool. Sounds great. And um, yeah, I mean, both that and the clinics, if, if our listeners can get to one, sounds like a fantastic thing to, to get onto. Dweezil, I know our time's limited, and I really want to honor that. Um, are you able to quickly talk us through your rig, what, what rig you're going to be bringing on sure. this tour? Yeah, well, um, due to the nature of the expense of traveling so far, um, I have developed a small guitar rig that uh, travels uh, easily. The, the biggest challenge I always run into with my dad's music is that he he was so inventive with the guitar sounds yeah, uh, from yeah. song to song and era, you know, every different era. So uh, the best way for me to be able to recreate all that stuff and keep track of it and... Uh, and be able to use it with presets and all that stuff is by using an Axe FX unit. Uh, now, typically, in my normal setup, I would use two Axe FX, uh, the rack-mounted units, but for this upcoming tour, I'm going to use the floor unit, which is the Axe 8. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. the smaller version, just a single stereo thing. I normally have a quad setup, but... Uh, in the the little version, I can do probably eighty five percent of what I can do in the uh, the bigger version of my rig. Okay, cool. Um, but uh, this this version of the rig fits in a Pelican case in an overhead compartment. Yeah, uh, you know, so that that makes it quite a bit easier. Um, because uh, in the past, I've used analog amplifiers and a lot of rack units and stuff like that. Even some of the gear was stuff that was originally in my dad's guitar rack. Um, but I've found ways to recreate it digitally that really sounds good. Um, and uh, so that's the, the small version. I, I use a couple of different fuzz pedals and some other things along with it, but generally... It's a it's a pretty small setup yeah, that goes cool. in an overhead, and then I'll bring a couple guitars. I'll have a an SG and, uh, and a Stratocaster. Nice. Is the SG is that the Roxy model? It's the Roxy model. Uh, mine is a little bit customized. It has a, a Sustainiac pickup in it, uh, which um, I use quite often for uh, different textures and parts that I'm playing um, within the music, um, it allows me to uh, get some some different kinds of um, things that make it not sound exactly like a guitar. So when I want to have, uh, when I'm playing a part that would have been a keyboard part originally, or even a violin part or something, I can yeah. add a certain kind of um, texture to it that uh, that just blends it into the arrangement more and doesn't make it sound like, oh, suddenly you have too much rock guitar in the band. You know, it's like it really does help um, make it blend into the ensemble. 
Yeah, sure. And your strat, are there any interesting mods you've done to that? Um, the, the, the one I'm going to bring, um, it just depends. I might end up having to bring it back up, but the one I'm planning to bring does have this um, thing. Uh, there's a, a guitar maker. Um, the, the company's called Echo Park Guitars, mm -hmm. yep. and it's a Karina Strat oh, okay, with cool. um, uh, some specialty pickups in it. It's got a humbucker in the bridge and two single coils, but there's also this... Uh, this thing that is called a range bastard uh, that's uh, <laughs> built into the guitar, and it's it's on a on a five way um, rotary knob, and uh, it basically gives you um, some filtered sounds, and you have it in different combinations with the pickups that can be in phase or out of phase, and and uh, you can get a lot of extra sounds uh by flipping that rotary knob um so it's it's good for some of the recreation of some of the weirder sounds that my dad did but it also does things that you really haven't heard before because it's, it's an oddball circuit but it's passive it doesn't have any batteries okay. or anything Sounds awesome. That's great. Well, listen, Diesel, thank you so much for uh, joining me today on the Guitar Speak podcast. Again, we're super excited that you're coming down to Australia in February uh, 2018 and New Zealand. And, um, yeah, I mean, yep. I, I could talk all day. I would love to speak again perhaps sometime about more about your solo career, but um, it's been fascinating to talk about um, how you're bringing your father's music around the world and, and honouring his amazing legacy. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, we can definitely talk more anytime. Uh, I, one thing that I, I think you might find interesting is that um, in November of this year, I'm going to uh, be debuting some of my own orchestral music. Uh, there's a 100-piece orchestra in Holland. Oh, wow. We're doing two concerts, and um, I'm going to do about... 35 to 40 minutes of my own orchestral music and then um, playing uh, some of my dad's music uh, with the orchestra as well. We're going to do a version of Watermelon and Easter Hay and some other things. Um, and uh, I think also uh, one piece by Steve Vai. So it's uh, oh, called Dweezil Zappa's Orchestral Favorites and it's happening in <laughs> Holland uh, awesome. in November. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. So I guess if we just keep our eyes on your website and your social media, we could keep up to date with all that kind of stuff. Yeah, the good news is we're going to record it, so at least we'll have an option to uh, to put it out at some point. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. That sounds great. Well, yeah, definitely we'll, we'll keep an eye out for that. Sounds great. All right, well, again, thanks so much, Weasel. Right, really cool talking, and, um, yeah, we'll see you in Australia in a few months. Sounds good, thanks. Okay, cheers. Thank you very much. Sure, thanks. Bye-bye. Bye now. All right, there you go, my conversation with Dweezil Zappa. And I am totally looking forward to that too. I'll just quickly run the dates by you. Auckland, 20th of February. Brisbane, 22nd of February. Sydney, 23rd. Melbourne, 24th. Adelaide, 25th. And Perth on Tuesday, the 27th of February, 2018. Check out the usual outlets for ticket details. Not only concerts, but the masterclasses before each show as well. 
All right, thank you so much for joining me on the Guitar Speak podcast. If you're enjoying the interviews, remember you can subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or iHeartRadio or most podcatcher devices, and you can get our episodes free every single week sent to you. We've had interviews with people like Andy Timmons, uh, Scott Henderson, Gretchen Men, Jude Gold. Plenty of cool guitar playing folks have been on the show. So, uh, yeah, why not dig through the past episodes as well? You can also connect with us on Facebook or Instagram, and uh, we love to hear from you on those forums. All right, thanks for joining me. My name's Matt Wakeling. You have been listening to the Guitar Speak podcast, and I'll see you next time. Bye now.